Here in Chicago, a landmark building is coming down to make way for a new McDonald's headquarters. Harpo Studios, the one-time home of the Oprah Winfrey Show, the place where people would line up for days to get in, the place where Tom Cruise jumped up and down on a couch, the place where TV history was being made in our city was being demolished. We stopped a construction worker at the site to ask him about it. This is the spot where she had all the cars at, right? Um, when she gave away those cars. I mean, everybody remembers that one, but, you know, you got to move on. I mean, I don't know what's going to end up right here. I heard maybe something like a McDonald's or something else, but I'm, I'm really not sure. But, yeah, it is kind of sad to see it go, huh? Everybody loves Oprah. Since we heard about the demolition, we've been talking to dozens of people that used to work at Harpo. It's just too sad. I can't, you know, I can't see it. It, we, it makes me weep because it's, it was beautiful. We had a beautiful time in that studio. I don't, I don't want to see it yet. <laughs> I don't want to see it. It makes me really sad. Like, where did it all go? Like, who has the furniture? Who has my chair? Makes you feel a little old when they start <laughs> demolishing the buildings you worked in. Good feeling. Thanks for bringing that up, Jennifer. <laughs> doing my job, Debbie. Just doing my job. <laughs> I feel a little differently. I feel like I would be sad if I had to drive by the building and the McDonald's logo was there instead of Oprah's name. That would break my heart. Have you been back to the site since the demolition? Or um, No. I guess a part of me just hasn't wanted to go by there. Why? I don't know. It's just... Um. It was a time. And then seeing the building gone, it's like that time is over. In our interviews with the former Harponians, that's what they call themselves... For them, even though the show ended five years ago, the destruction of Harpo Studios somehow makes it feel like the show is really gone and that the era of the Oprah Winfrey show is now officially over. Now, the beginning of that era, the moment when Oprah first said, hello, that was in 1986, 30 years ago this year, when her talk show officially went national. By the show's finale in 2011, it was aired in 145 countries and watched by over 40 million viewers a week in the U.S. alone. Today's daytime superstars, Ellen, Drs. Oz, and Phil, they now average about a tenth of that. There are so many different chat shows, cable channels, and internet personalities today. The media pie has been sliced into so many different pieces that there will never be another daytime television show as big, as important, or as nationally influential as The Oprah Winfrey Show. She mentioned a book title, and it became a bestseller. She landed the interviews that no one else could get. Her message of spirituality and empowerment impacted millions. With an hour-long daytime TV show, Oprah built a powerful brand, she made billions, and as CNN, USA Today, Forbes, and Time Magazine all proclaimed, she became the most powerful woman in America. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Oprah. I'm Jen White, and I'm a host here at WBEZ. I've spent my career working in radio and television. I've also, like a lot of people, watched a ton of Oprah over the years. I can remember growing up watching Oprah with my mom or sisters or friends, seeing the opening titles, hearing the theme song, which we're listening to right now, and waiting to see what Oprah was going to tackle next. 
Now, we all know that Oprah is an unprecedented TV success. She's called the most influential woman in America, I know. But how did she do it? How did she figure out what to say, what to do, what not to do? What were the challenges, the backstories, the missteps, and the accidents of history that all came together to make Oprah? In this podcast, we're going to figure that out, what it took to make Oprah. And to do that, we're going to talk to the people who were really close to the evolution of the Oprah Winfrey show, the TV executives, the producers, and a certain silver-haired rival host. And also, hold on, we're eventually going to hear from someone really close to the show. We're going to talk to Oprah. This is part one of three, and in this episode, we're going to look at the late 80s, the years when the Oprah Winfrey show was thrown together by a handful of young, scrappy producers. This is the beginning of the age of Oprah, a time when she's introduced to America in a big way. So settle in, live your best life, and listen to a public radio podcast about daytime TV. Hi there. My name is Oprah Winfrey. Oprah, spelled O-P-R-A-H, and if you noticed, it's Harpo spelled backwards. In 1983, before Oprah Winfrey became simply known as Oprah, she was a young, sprightly, local news celebrity in a different city on an audition tape. And after being in Baltimore for seven years, I'm ready to come to Chicago. Bye. The tape wasn't anything super remarkable, but it was sent to WLS, then a troubled television station in Chicago that had a struggling half-hour morning talk show. Good morning. Welcome to Friday's AM Chicago. Thanks, Fred. Boy, am I glad it's Friday. I have had it with the weather. About three or four days of this stuff consecutively, I get depressed. LS was a mess in those days. It was last virtually in everything. Dennis Swanson is a TV legend. Among all the things he's done, he brought Regis and Kathy Lee together. And the reason why we stagger the Winter and Summer Olympics every two years? Yeah, that was his idea. But in 1983, Dennis was the new boss at WLS, brought in to turn around the failing Chicago station. Things were so bad that not even their main host wanted to be there. The very first day I was there, this guy comes down and knocks on my office door and says, I have to see you. He says, I'm the host of the AM Chicago show, and I need to get out of my contract. After the host left his office, Dennis looked up how AM Chicago was doing. He discovered that they were in last place, way behind the national show hosted by the then king of daytime, Phil Donahue. AM Chicago's host came back to Dennis's office. I said, I got great news. I'm in a good mood because I got promoted. And so I'm going to let you out of your contract. Not something normally I would do, but uh, you're free to go. And so that gave us then an avenue to find different people to do our morning show. And did you know what you were looking for when you started well, that search? Yeah, well, I, I did it a little bit different. I, I said to the people in the station, I said, look, you folks have always tried to find some male to beat Phil Donahue, and you're trying to out Donahue Donahue. Let's consider putting a female there and create a distinct alternative to Donahue. Now, in order to understand the television environment that Oprah began in, you really need to understand the Phil Donahue show. And I, of course, couldn't out Donahue Donahue with anyone other than Donahue, so I called Donahue. Jennifer, okay. All right. So just to get started, Mr. Donahue, you know, we've talked to a lot of people about what it takes to produce a daily talk show. What do you think the biggest challenges are? 
Well, my goodness. Um, they certainly are there. I mean, uh, there's nothing quite like it being Tuesday and you don't have a guest for Wednesday. But most of all, it's, I think the biggest challenge is staying current. We had to make a mad, sad, or glad, or we would not survive in Dayton, Ohio. Way back in 1967, Phil Donahue invented the format that would conquer daytime television. In a suit and tie, glasses, and a helmet of silver hair, Phil strolled through the studio audience with a mic in hand, tackling any controversy. We were very different. Nobody's program on television at that time was doing this kind of material. Everything was either ha-ha, hee-hee, Laugh, laugh, win a prize, spinning wheels, come on down. We had our first gay guy on in the first week of our show. Uh, You know, we did the first show on AIDS. We did the first show on priest and uh, the church scandal with pedophilia. I guess if if you think I'm bragging, I I am. (laughs) I'm very proud, and so is everybody in our office. By 1974, The Phil Donahue Show was broadcasting throughout the country. The show's production was relocated to station WGN in Chicago, where it was simply renamed to Donahue. It was the big bang of American daytime TV. You want me to move back? Oh, I'm in the way. Excuse me. Yes. Oh, shh. I'm upstaging you. <laughs> Don't you just love these smooth shows? Uh, that's how you got out of dating, huh? Uh, <laughs> these young men want to get married, and they're serious about it. And Did you sleep with Madonna? <laughs> these folks came to see the Donahue show, and here we are talking about AIDS. And are you there, caller? Go ahead. These parents, and we will continue to look at moshing when we come back in just a moment. The best shows were the ones where we had to fight the audience off, where a community developed between me and the guests and the audience, and uh, it was a wonderful ride. I would wish it on anybody I love. Donahue walked around the audience. He took calls. He wanted your opinions. He invited Americans into a conversation about topics that weren't typically discussed on TV. We did a program in our one of the early weeks that we were on the air, on the anatomically correct doll. So the male doll would have this little tallywhacker between his <laughs> legs. And I held the doll up. And I said, do you think this is objectionable for children? If you do, call Baldwin 6 5 4 If you do not, call Baldwin 7 7 Well, the entire Baldwin exchange went out and it collapsed. And then the telephone company was panicked. I mean, you know, people couldn't call an ambulance. I mean, you know, it's not funny. You can really. That's what got us here. Anyway, back to 1983. Donahue is still sitting at the top of daytime based out of Chicago. There's really no competition. Meanwhile... Oprah Winfrey is in Baltimore on a local talk show. Her producer was Debbie DeMeo. A producer is someone, in my estimation, who's always trying to figure out what to do when everything falls apart. So they're the person with a plan. They're the person who knows what to do when there's a, a live fire going on. And also the person that kind of creates what the future is going to be like. Eventually, Debbie DeMeo would become one of the most important people in the evolution of The Oprah Winfrey Show. 
Are you a racist? Whether you're black or white, race relations expert Dr. Charles King says you probably are. In the early 80s, Debbie helped produce a show that Oprah was co-hosting called People Are Talking. And I remember in those days, because Oprah had a co-host, he would tap her on the leg when he allowed her to speak. So she didn't get to talk as much as she wanted to. Join us on Channel 13's People Are Talking all week long at 9 o'clock. It was a good experience for her. But it wasn't where she was going to shine. Debbie eventually left Baltimore for Chicago to start a new, better-paying job at WLS. She was working in the program department right when Dennis Swanson took over the station and was on the hunt for a new morning host. She came down with the tape and she said, I understand that you're looking for somebody to do the AM show and I want to give you this tape. She says, not a real good tape, but this woman is really good and you should consider her. In this interview from 1987, Oprah talks about this time when she's in Baltimore and Debbie's in Chicago. She called me and said, they don't have a host here. I said, what do you mean they don't have a host? The host is leaving. You should send a tape. And I went back to Baltimore to pack up my stuff, went over to Oprah's house and said, "Okay, this is what you've always been talking about. Because for about a year before that, she said her dream was to live in Chicago. She wanted to live in Chicago. And I, you know, was one of those people who lived my life saying, well, if something comes up, it does, and if it doesn't, that's okay. So Debbie essentially is the one who cued me into this job and would call me every night from Chicago saying, well, listen, they've got seven other tapes they have to look at, but I think you're going to hold up. You're looking good. You're looking good. Hi there. My name is Oprah Winfrey. Oprah, spelled O-P-R-A-A. Dennis wasn't really that impressed by the audition tape, but Debbie's endorsement convinced him to fly Oprah in for an in-person audition. He brought her in on a Saturday, brought in a crew, put her on set, and staged a mock AM Chicago show. Well... How did she do? Oh, my goodness. I'm sitting in my office watching this audition, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, Dennis, you can't be this lucky. This woman is unbelievable. Oprah was such a natural in front of the camera that it was all Dennis needed to see. He invited her upstairs to his office and offered her the job. Finally, she said to me, she said, do you have any concerns? And I said, no, not that I can think of. And she says, well, you know, I'm black. I said, well, I think I have that figured out. So I said, we're over that hurdle. She says, you know, I'm overweight. And I said, well, so am I, and so are many Americans. I said, here's the deal. If we get this thing worked out, I don't want you to change a thing. I don't want a new hairdo. I don't want a weight loss. But I said, now that I think about it, I do have a concern. And she sat back in her chair, and she said, what would that be? I said, well, I've seen people in this business push their success right up their nose. I want to make sure that you can handle success. And she said to me, she said, do you really think I could be that successful? I said, well, this will probably cost me some money when I deal with your agent, but I think you're going to shoot the lights out. I said, I don't know that you'll know how successful you're going to be. So I remember that day pacing back and forth as if, I don't know, we were in a maternity ward almost. (laughs) And I remember she went straight to Dennis's office and we went back to our office and we waited and we waited, and we waited, and we heard the elevator doors open. We heard her yelling, whooping it up, (laughs) running down the hall with her high heels over her head, and we looked at each other. Yep, we've got game. 
Dennis Swanson offered a morning host position to an unknown black woman at a time when there weren't that many people hosting daytime talk shows who looked like Oprah. But he'd made his decision, and he called his bosses at ABC. He said, Dennis, are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, this is the one. And um, I I knew my job was on the line. When you're a, a, a television executive and you're responsible for programming, if the programs and the ratings are good, you get to keep your job. And if they're not good, you don't keep your job. I mean, it's just about that simple. The hiring of Oprah Winfrey at AM Chicago has become an old war story that Dennis Swanson is now really proud to retell. You know, she became a billionaire and, you know, I got promoted. So it worked out good for both of us. <laughs> Looking back now, it's easy to think of Oprah's meteoric rise to TV greatness as something predestined to happen. But in 1984, an African-American woman hosting one of those cheery, sunny, daily morning talk shows in the country's third largest market by herself? For the TV execs, the heads at ABC, and the producers waiting in the wings, there was absolutely no guarantee of success. So, news. Yes. That's my producer, Colin. He'd spent a couple of months trying to book one particular interview for this project. And finally, he had some news. Uh, we have Oprah. Okay, my. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. I just spoke to her assistant. Uh-huh. And Oprah can do this coming Monday <laughs> in L.A. So we're going to meet Oprah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. Oh so that's happening. God. Yay! Oh my gosh, <laughs> Colin. Okay, I'm hold on. I've got to get my, I've got to center, Jennifer. <laughs> center yourself. I know that reaction was a bit much, but here's what you have to understand. I'm a forty-something-year-old black woman who spent her career working in the media. Oprah means a lot. And as you can imagine, she's not the easiest interview to get. So when you land an interview with Oprah and you recover from the shock, here's what you do. You get a pedicure because you're going to wear open-toed shoes. You buy a new dress, nothing too fancy, but it's new. You fly to Los Angeles. You drive to Warner Brothers Studios, where the season premiere of The Ellen DeGeneres Show is being filmed. You're led to your dressing room next to the one occupied by actor Channing Tatum and Olympic gymnast Simone Biles. Oh, wow. Okay, so there's going to be a lot of background noise. Never mind, you press on, setting up your recording equipment. This is the mic where Oprah's testing the mics like good public radio producers do. This is the mic where Oprah will speak early. You watch the stage feed on a TV in your dressing room and see Ellen introduce Oprah. Right now, you can sing one of my co-stars from Magic, Michelle, right now. Get your dollar bills ready for Oprah Winfrey, everybody. You watch the audience going nuts, screaming, Oh my God, it's Oprah! Well, let me just say, 14 years, I know what that is. Congratulations. And you watch Oprah walk off stage knowing that she's headed for your dressing room. Then Oprah walks in. You guys. Great, great, great. Hi, Hello. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Nice to meet you. Colin, very nice to meet you. Hi, Colin. Nice to meet you. 
We had Dennis Swanson last week. Oh, Dennis Swanson. Oh, my God. That's how it all started, my friend. I wouldn't have even remembered that this was, th- was th- the 30th year. Really? I mean, it's been the longest goodbye in the history of the world. I've been yeah. saying goodbye since, when do we actually ended it? 2011. Mm-hmm. Ay, ay, ay. It's, it's... I'm, I'm ready to roll. You ready? Yeah, longest yeah. goodbye. Okay. Yeah. When you think back to yourself sitting in Dennis's office mm-hmm. right after that audition, mm-hmm. and he recounts a story where he is telling you he wants you to come to Chicago. Yeah. And your response, you say to him, well, I'm black and I'm overweight. Yeah. And he says, well, I can see that and so am I. Yeah. What would you tell her about what Uh, was going to happen? What would I tell that person? Oh, my younger self about what was going to happen? Well, I I would say that's a hard question to answer. I had no fear coming. I had no fear. I knew I was stepping into destiny in a way that I could not even explain for myself. I did not think it would become what it did. I did not think, oh, I'm going to be famous or I'm going to have a national talk show. Everybody knows that there's a time that comes in your life when where you are is no longer where you're supposed to be. And that is what I knew about Baltimore. Because for me, life has always been about growth. Next, Oprah blows into Chicago, goes head-to-head with Bill Donahue, and conquers daytime. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. This is Making Oprah. I'm Jen White. When we left off, I had just sat down with Oprah Winfrey. After TV executive Dennis Swanson saw her audition, he was absolutely positive that she was the right person to host AM Chicago. But Oprah was equally sure that Chicago was right for her. I will say I manifested Chicago. I didn't like the idea of trying to move around New York. It wasn't energetically palatable for me. I thought, I will be suffocated here. No grass, no trees. I realized that although L.A. was the second market, I was the wrong minority at the time, and I was not going to be able to break that barrier. D.C. was out of the question because every single major affiliate, CBS, NBC, ABC, already had their black institutional host. I knew I wasn't going to crack that. So by a process of elimination, I decided Chicago. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're making a connection in Chicago today, you can find the As 
I was landing in the city, you know, flying in on American Airlines and looking at the city, this feeling came over me that I'm going to be here. And I remember like tearing up, like I'm going to be here. It felt like, I used to say at the time, this will be my Tara and I will call it home. (laughs) This will be my home. And I felt that way for years. Every time I would fly from anywhere and fly into O'Hare and see the city, I had that feeling of this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm Oprah Winfrey, the new host of AM Chicago, and I am thrilled to be here. It is a star-studded, hour-long, live Rose Bowl party next on AM Chicago. Oprah made her debut at AM Chicago in January 1984. Within months, Oprah catapulted to the top of the Chicago market. Ratings soared. WLS, her station, went from last to first in the region. Again, that's within months. Over half of local viewers were suddenly watching AM Chicago because of her. That was better, ratings-wise, than what Donahue was doing in the same city where his national show was made. Good morning, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and welcome to AM Chicago. Just want to let you know that we had such a great response. The station, the producers, Oprah herself, they knew they were on to something. Debbie DeMeo, who had produced Oprah in Baltimore, was now producing Oprah in Chicago. As soon as she took over AM Chicago, it was as if she had been there her whole life. It was like a puzzle piece locked into place. And there she was, AM Chicago, Oprah Winfrey, and everyone fell in love with her overnight. It was a shotgun marriage. Morning! Morning! Merry Christmas, everybody! AM Chicago was expanded from a half hour to an hour and renamed the Oprah Winfrey Show, since that's what people were calling it anyway. We'll take a break. Be right back. Besides the TV show, some other big things were happening with Oprah. At Christmas in 1985, the movie The Color Purple was released, with Oprah co-starring as Sophia. Oh, my life, I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my uncles. I had to fight my brothers. I never thought I had to fight in my own house. I love Hoppo. God knows I do. But I kill him dead before I let him beat me. The color purple was a big deal. Not only could this local talk show host boost some local TV ratings, she could act. You will never forget the color purple. And I mean Oscar-nominated act. The nominees... Performance by an actress in a supporting role are Oprah Winfrey in The Color Purple. This was the rest of the nation's first introduction to Oprah Winfrey. Meanwhile, behind the scenes of her success with The Color Purple, contracts were being drawn up to take her local show national. Oprah chatted about the move with the film's director. Don't know if you've heard of him. And I remember saying to Steven Spielberg at the time, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm not going to be here for the next few days. He said, oh, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go sign this contract that I'm going to be doing a talk show. What kind of show? He says, is it radio? Is it? I go, no, it's, it's like Donahue, but only it's me. He said, OK. So it was just this casual chat between Oprah Winfrey and Steven Spielberg. Oh, you're launching a national talk show. That's nice. And uh, that was just it. Back then, if you're going to go national, King World was the syndicator to go with. You might recognize their credit jingle here. 
a TV syndicator is a company that sells programs to local stations throughout the country. By 1984, King World had shows like this one. Hi, I'm Pat Sajak. And this little show. This is Jeopardy! The distribution rights to those coveted game shows gave King World some real bargaining power with local stations. Now, I hate to keep harping on about this, but this is 1986. We all know that Oprah eventually became the most influential TV host in America. But back then, there was no guarantee of success. There were plenty of doubters. Remember, Oprah herself asked Dennis Swanson whether he was sure that an overweight black female host would work in the Chicago market, much less the rest of the country. But King World salivated at what she had done to turn around AM Chicago, and they pushed the local affiliates for her hard. And in September 1986, the Oprah Winfrey show was cleared in an unprecedented number of cities, 138 markets across the country. Oprah still gets a little excited about that first national show. So the show was nationally syndicated on September 8th, 1986. So tell me how you felt on September 7th. Actually, I wrote in my journal the night before. Gee, I wonder how my life will change. The word syndication meant "Mm, you'll be in some other cities, but it really didn't register to me the level of influence, power, and dynamism that the platform would offer. I had no idea. I had no idea. Well, the very first episode of the show was a bit of a hellish experience. Alan Rackadin was a producer brought in not long before the national debut. We started trying to book people, and we were calling people saying, hi, we're calling from this brand new show. It's called The Oprah Winfrey Show, and this woman came from Baltimore, and then she came to Chicago, and blah, blah, blah. People were like, yeah, okay, thanks, bye. The Oprah empire doesn't exist yet. Back then, it was really a small group of people that were making a local talk show. And as their national debut got closer and closer, they were struggling just to book a guest. We had in our mind, mistakenly by the way, that we wanted a celebrity. That we thought a celebrity was the be-all, end-all answer. So we tried and tried celebrities. And we had become obsessed with Don Johnson. And we sent Don Johnson and Mink teddy bear. We had these really cool sunglasses made for him. Yeah, he didn't do the show. I don't even think, I don't think, not only did he not do the show, I don't think they didn't call us back. By this time, Debbie DeMeo had moved up to executive producer, meaning other than Oprah, she was the one in charge. She ran the show. Oprah's great friends with Quincy Jones, and I asked him one time, what should we do? The pressure's so great, the first show, what the heck are we going to do? And he said, baby, you're doing nothing but pygmy stretching right now. And I didn't know, what do you mean pygmy stretching? And he said, you know, you're just taking something small and trying to make something out of it. Because we had no one. We had nothing. So literally in the 11th hour... There was a woman named Margaret Kent who had written a book called How to Get a Man to Marry. It was her book. And that was the show we did. And, um, you know, Oprah started it. It's the, you know, famous clip of, you know, welcome to the very first Oprah Winfrey show. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey. And welcome to the very first National Oprah Winfrey show. You know, and I've seen that clip now 
like 100,000 times. You know, there has been so much hoopla about this premiere show that it's enough to give a girl hives. I've got them right now under my armpits. Okay, that moment, 20 seconds into the first national broadcast, the hives under the armpits line, that was new to television. Oprah's hosting style, that sort of down-home realness, the winks and nods to the audience, that was there right from the beginning. One thing I've learned is that no matter how far down you go, and I tell you, I have been down on my knees with the best of you, no matter how low you feel, (laughs) this show... This show always allows people, hopefully, to understand the power they have to change their own lives. Now, I don't have a lot of problems in my life, I have to tell you. Things are going pretty good for me right now. But two things have bugged me for years. The first, my thighs. The second, second, my love life. Even in these first moments, you see the beginnings of what the show would become. But this isn't quite the Oprah Winfrey show we think about today. Eventually, it would become a place where suburban women could learn how to live your best life. But it took a while for the show to get there. In the beginning, they relied on tabloid stuff. Here's the first week of shows. Sexually abused by doctors, feuding families, Aryan nations, and how fat affects marriages. Some critics labeled the Oprah Winfrey show as lowbrow Phil Donahue. And during these early years, Oprah was constantly measured against her ratings rival. Like her close competitor, Phil Donahue, Oprah treats her audience to an eclectic array of subjects. For example, men who wear women's clothes. To men and women who like to wear no clothes at all. How do you decide to become a nudist? I mean, what happens in your life that just one day you want to take off your clothes? I don't know for everyone, but... Every morning since September, millions across America have been treated to a dazzling display of human emotion, a battlefield with Oprah caught in the crossfire. This is really something. I've raised six kids and you don't got any? Meetings and plan events. Bull. Come back to Marquette Park. Bull. Incite race riots. That is a lie, and I'll take, ram it down I've your throat. Producer Ellen Rackadin. The ratings came in, and I remember we were all sitting there. We had beaten Phil Donahue. We didn't even think about it. Like, we were just doing our show. We were never like, oh, let's beat Phil Donahue. He was Phil Donahue. And so that sort of was like, holy, 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 whoa. Suddenly loomed this woman that everybody was talking about. And, And what was the reaction from your producers about this new person on the scene? Was there this new pressure that you hadn't felt before? Probably. But I don't recall... You know, the producers that worked for me were mostly women, not all, but mostly women. You know, nobody wanted to barge into the office and say, holy cow, this woman from Chicago is really, oh, 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 oh." you know, I think they didn't want to, I'm guessing now, they didn't want to rattle me. The formats of the Oprah Winfrey show and the Phil Donahue show were pretty much identical. Oprah and Phil were billed as the king and queen of daytime, with Phil reigning in the morning and Oprah reigning in the afternoon. Publicist Alice McGee helped local TV stations promote the show. And I was kind of on the front line with that because I was the publicist. Chicago was, you know, the first thing, but we were just really embraced. Makes me love Chicago even more. But 1986, oh boy, some of the affiliates really didn't take it. And we did not want them putting her on at 2 a.m. 
because that's where they put a lot of black people. And it was like public service and in your community. And King World saw to it that we were on the powerhouse stations. They had to fight and they had to be her, Oprah's advocate saying, no, you're putting us on. And of course, you know, you just want to go back and say na 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 to them. Working in promotion meant Alice also got to see some of the more creative marketing decisions that some stations made. It was, I believe it was Idaho. Idaho did not want it. And they also created a promo that we later saw and we were cracking up. It was set to Ebony and Ivory, and it was Bill Donahue and Oprah Winfrey, cuts of the show, because they were back-to-back, and somebody thought that was a great promo. And it was just, you know, we all did a collective, you know, cringe and said, who's making the call? (laughs) We tactfully explained that we did not want that, you know, type of representing, and just do the promos that we have prepared for you, and uh, we did prevail in that respect. On the next Oprah Winfrey Show, an old-fashioned debate about old-fashioned women. Are they really the happiest and the smartest? Does the 80s woman have nothing to show but heartache and unhappiness? Monday at 2 on ASN. At home, millions of suburban women across the country were steadily lifting the Oprah show to the height of daytime TV. And in their minds, the producers boiled down their core female audience to one woman. She even had a name. We really kept in mind, you know, sometimes Oprah would say, how does this affect me or how does this affect Susie? (laughs) Susie was a token, you know, suburban woman who I now am. (laughs) As the producers were programming the show, Susie sat in the back of their minds. Would Susie care about this? Why would this matter to Susie? What question would Susie ask the show's guest? Imagining Susie, the kind of show she'd want to see, it was working. Towards the end of 1987, both Donahue and Oprah were reaching a daily audience of 9 to 10 million viewers, most of them suburban women. The dream team, Dion, Patty, and Gladys, here they are singing Superwoman. Even as the show was exploding across the country, the staff was small, four female producers and Oprah trying to figure out what they were making. And according to Oprah's small early team, the success of the show in the late 80s wasn't because they were this well-oiled machine. Early in the morning. There was no strategy, there was no plan, there was no formula. And we were just making it up as we went along. Publicist Alice McGee. And there was never any proactive publicity. It really just took hold of itself on its own. And it was the easiest job in the world. In some ways, because she was natural, she was who she was, I didn't have to sell her. Well, the show has always been and always was a reflection of where we were as the producers. And there are mostly women producers, so I'll often refer to us as women people. I want to be inclusive of the few men that were also producers. But, so, but we mostly relied on the instincts of the women of that show. That's why those early shows were all about finding men, dating men, dating white-collar men, blue-collar men, Alaskan men, because that's where all the producers were. It just followed wherever we were in our lives. So let's try again. If Oprah was to walk in the room right now, first time you meet her, give her a hand, okay? This is some raw footage from a promotional video made in-house backstage in 1987. Producer Ellen Rackett. You know, people always say to me, oh, is there like a big infrastructure and like a mission and boards and, you know, projections? And, and no, there's literally four girls 
in a room, small room. Oprah had this little office, and we did shows that we thought would interest us. All right, let's go. Can we go downstairs now? Executive producer Debbie DeMeo. You know, it's a funny thing because we were a group of largely single women in our 20s trying to project ourselves into the minds and hearts of suburban housewives. That was the first tricky thing we had to do because that was our audience. Oprah Winfrey! Hi, everybody. Producer Ellen Racketit. I single, I went on a date, he didn't call me back. Let's do a show on, you know, why he didn't call me back. Feeling fat today, you know, want new jeans, what's going to make me look the best, you know. Let's go do a show on, like, you know, what jeans make your butt look good. We had to try to figure out what were they thinking and what were they caring about and how can we form the show, particularly in the first segment, to answer the question, the key question, how does this affect me? And as long as we answered that question in the first several seconds of the show, people watched. Four, three, cue applause, effect, music's in. Oh, we got it running. Uh, joining us now are three gorgeous men who have known gorgeous women. They can tell us from the male perspective why it is often difficult for beautiful women to find love and happiness. Kim this promotional Peterman tape we found also has lots of Oprah and the producers joking around backstage. <laughs> oh, it's so sad around here. Oh, God. Being friends with a beautiful woman, well, oh. I don't have any friends who are beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, it's a mistake to put us together, really. Is. The early team and the host became really, really close. Debbie DeMeo. We formed this relationship that was, I could finish her sentences, she could finish mine. And it was intense, and it was wonderful. And I used to joke to her because I would sit in a control room with so many monitors that I would saw her face for 15 years, way more than I saw my own. So it was a very special relationship. Ellen Rackadon. I mean, you know, besides my parents, the, you know, the most significant relationship of my life. Publicist Alice McGee. You know, a lot of times, you know, people would accuse us of being a cult, but that was our level of devotion. And it didn't have to necessarily do with income. It had to do with just the livelihood and who we were. We really were a we. Hi, McGee. Come in here, McGee. I have this outfit. Don't I have this? Oprah and this small group of female producers would tape two shows a day, three days a week, with plenty of prep time and guest hunting on either side, working into the night and over the weekend. We had to beg just to get a be celebrity on. Please, please, we're doing a show about sexy celebrities, please. And, it, you know, it was just, it was such hard work because we were still, you know, carried the stigma of a daytime talk show. You know, we were a success, but the more successful we became, the more the pressure became. You couldn't just call it in. I mean, we... We're believers. We spent our youth on that show. It was a 24-hour position, and the reason we were able to work such hours and put such devotion into it is that we firmly believed that we were doing something to create good. And then letters started coming in. People wrote letters and called us, and, we, and they told us what they thought, and they told us how it impacted their lives. You did this show, and I didn't kill myself. You did this show, and I got out of an abusive marriage. Or you did this show, and I asked her to marry me. 
I have boxes and stacks and thousands of them. This is the thing about the Oprah show that I loved so much. I always knew in my heart, not from an egotistical point of view, but literally from a spiritual point of view, there will never be another show like it. Because part of what made it what it was, was the timing of it. We were at a particular time in our culture where women were rediscovering themselves. We were just moving into people having cable options. But when I first started, there were four networks. So just the opportunity to have a massive amount of women at one time viewing your show who were at home thinking about their lives and raising their children. I mean, that's not going to happen again. That was good. We'll be right back. And we'll be back, too. Coming up on Making Oprah, everybody's talking about Oprah and her weight and the highest-rated moment in the history of The Oprah Winfrey Show. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Oprah. I'm Jen White. From the very beginning, so much of the buzz about Oprah centered around how this new host looked. Besides how her hair looked that day, the tabloids became obsessed with Oprah's weight. And Oprah herself would regularly bring it up on the show. Those of you who are just getting the show around the country, I I am one of those people who has dieted and gained and dieted and gained. And since I started dieting, have gained 70 pounds. A People magazine article from August 1986 describes Oprah as, quote, 200 pounds of mirth and girth in designer gowns. All that scrutiny is something that Phil Donahue never had to deal with. And the attention seemed to have an effect on Oprah. This is a very personal show for me because I have received thousands. You wouldn't believe the letters my office has received. Hundreds of calls every day and every place I go, out on the streets, airports, people screaming out of buses. They've all been asking me the same question over and over. Hey, Oprah! Oak Creek girl! How'd you lose all that weight? In November 1988, the Oprah Winfrey Show aired an episode called Diet Dreams Come True. Oprah had lost so much weight that she felt like she had to do something to acknowledge it and flaunt it. Now, this is me in 1981 in Baltimore. That's me, the big-headed girl with the afro there. That is the last time I was in the Calvin Klein size 10 jeans until today. 
Oprah whips off the heavy jacket she's been wearing for the big reveal. She's in the jeans. I have lost, as of this morning, as of this morning, 67 pounds since July 7th. 67 pounds and 30 inches from my bust, my uh, waist, and my hips. Later in the show, Oprah pulls out a wagon loaded with 67 pounds of animal fat, which producer Alice McGee had collected from butchers around Chicago. This is what 67 pounds of fat looks like. I can't, I can't lift it, but I used to carry it around every day. And when you talk about making yourself the best you can be, I wonder what was happening behind the scenes during that process. Was there any concern about bringing that to an audience, about the pressure it put on her? Absolutely. It was like mixed feelings. We were so happy for her because of the weight loss, but it didn't make her any more, any less. Either way, she was always loved. Oprah lost the weight on a rigorous exercise regimen and four months of ingesting almost nothing but Optifast, a protein powder mixed with water. She really did starve herself. And in our office, that was really, I mean, it really took discipline. She, I mean, I would think she'd have to go to an altered state because we constantly had food. On that episode, Oprah shared a journal entry with the audience. So what is the bigger issue here? Self-esteem. For me, it is getting control of my life. I realize that this fat is a blocker. It is like having mud in my wings. That will happen this year because the bigger issue for me is going to be making myself the best I can be. Now that is why I went on the diet because I that show, to get now known as the Wagon of Fat episode, made a mark. Even for Oprah, the ratings were huge. People were talking about it. But looking back, Oprah doesn't feel so great about it. Looking back, I got to tell you, it's really hard for me to uh, watch because you can see that my ego is on flamboyant display. The Wagon of Fat episode is a complicated and fascinating moment for Oprah and the show. One that feels like it says something about her and the show and her viewers. Now, Oprah's relationship with her audience was about authenticity, relatability. Oprah announcing she had hives under her armpits. It was also about self-realization and empowerment for women. But with suddenly everyone paying attention to Oprah's weight loss, it wasn't so clear what message she was sending. Is it saying, I lost weight, other women should too? Was it just a very public celebration for a woman who had privately struggled with her weight for a long time? Was it saying, I'm comfortable in my own skin and I want it to be healthy? It's hard to tell. The Wagon of Fat episode would become and remains the most watched episode in the history of The Oprah Winfrey Show. About half of the total U.S. daytime television audience watched it. Half. In the end, that means the most watched moment in the history of the show is a big regret for Oprah herself. Here she is talking about it over 20 years later on one of her network's self-help shows. The ego was my belief that being in those Calvin Klein jeans made me worthy as a human being or more valuable or made me better. And so I have had to pay the price for that moment over and over and over. I literally handed to the world on a fat wagon platter The story of, is she fat, is she thin, is she fat, is she thin? Within weeks of her big weight loss reveal, Oprah began putting the weight back on. The, is she fat, is she thin, tabloid headlines kept coming. Why did people care? One of the key elements of her success was the fact that 
for the very first time on the white noise of television was a person who went forward and spoke about their flaws. And that was kind of unheard of back then. Executive producer Debbie DeMeo. She was the person who admitted that she was a foodaholic and that that night she had taken some frozen hot dog buns and poured some maple syrup over them and ate them. She admitted that. And there were, I remember when she said that there were gasps from the crowd and people at home were just like shaking their heads like, I can't believe she said that. But, but their second thought was, oh, geez, I've done something like that, too. So the very fact that she was smart enough and vulnerable enough to put herself out there, I think was one of the key recipes to her success. Oprah's truthfulness with the audience, from what it said on the scale to what was going on in her head, it solidified her connection with the viewers. People are always connecting to themselves when they see anyone they like on television in particular because it is the medium that is in the space with you. So the secret to being good on television is finding a way to find the truth of yourself, to be the truth of yourself. Because what people are relating to is what they see in themselves. So I wasn't, it wasn't me trying to relate. I've never tried to relate to anybody. I've just, I have the gift, I would say, I call it a gift because the very first time I interviewed Jesse Jackson, I was 19 years old, and Jesse Jackson said to me, you have the gift. You are on television exactly the way you are off television. That's a gift. It's that gift that puts Oprah in first place by the end of the 80s. By 1989, Oprah had beaten or tied with Phil Donahue in most markets. She had only gone national three years earlier. On top of that, Donahue had pioneered the art of daytime TV, and he had a 20-year head start. But by the end of the 80s, on stations that had both Oprah and Donahue, Oprah beat him 95% of the time. I think she just bursted on the scene probably more maturely shaped at the beginning than I was. I had a lot to learn. I mean, I grew up on my show. You know, I remember a, a Gloria Steinem looking at me on the air and saying, children in this country get too much mother and not enough father. And I thought, holy cow, they're talking about me. And I remember I, I hired the first black person for our office, because she had the biggest afro. These are some of the superficial things that this Catholic liberal was going through. I really think many of the women, not black and white and brown, watched Oprah and, you know, they knew what she meant. And I think there was a lot of head nodding up and down. Yes, 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 for the women at home. Oprah Winfrey! By 1989, Oprah Winfrey is worth over $40 million. Her show is broadcast in almost 200 outlets across the country. Practically every American with a TV is able to watch her. The first years of the Oprah Winfrey show were a historic success. As was clear during that AM Chicago audition five years earlier, she was a natural. 
I feel as comfortable being in front of that audience as I feel in my own living room with my pajamas and socks on. I always saw myself and continue to see myself, you know, the rare times that I now do interviews, um, as the surrogate viewer. So I felt empowered by the viewers. You want to get me weeping is, 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 is for me to think about the viewers. The viewers are my people. Next time on Making Oprah, the show gets new digs. You saw the dream. First, we saw it in the ratings. We saw it in the show getting bigger. And here was a physical manifestation of that dream. Things get spiritual. But that word spirit just seemed to throw everybody. And so from news directors and viewers alike, we got questions like, what, are you doing religion now? The stakes get raised. And I went to my hotel room and the phone rang. And it was a man and he said, this is the clan. We're going to kill you. Click. And Oprah gets some competition. I was feeling the pressure of Geraldo Rivera. Making Oprah is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jen White. The producer is someone who is now permanently on my Christmas card list because he got me in the same room as Oprah, a man that's right now living his best life, Colin McNulty. The executive producers are Ben Calhoun, who's had I'm Every Woman stuck in his head for weeks now, and Joel Meyer, who urges you to call the Baldwin Exchange if you think this podcast is objectionable to children. If you do, call Baldwin 65444. If you do not... Some of the audio in this episode comes courtesy of Harpo Incorporated. The show was mixed by Joe Dassault. Our digital editor is Trisha Bobita. And our intern is Annie Nguyen, who has watched quite enough Oprah by now. And make sure you're subscribed to Making Oprah on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this WBEZ podcast, you might want to check out Nerdette, where they nerd out about pop culture, books, TV, movies, anything and everything. Before we go, we told you what you do when you land an interview with Oprah. Well, there's this other thing you do, too. Let's see if she picks up. Hello? Hey, Mama. Hey. Hey, how are you? I'm I'm doing okay, just look, looking like a dust ball. I'm out here trying to... Clean the garage. Oh my, dust ball. Well, yeah. be be careful with that. Uh, don't lift really heavy stuff because you know how you do. <laughs> I already did it. <laughs> oh my, my. Um, I, but I wanted to c- call and give you a heads up because um, I'm going to have to do some traveling um, coming uh-huh. up, and I think like Sunday night I'm going to have to uh, fly out to L.A. because I'm going to be interviewing Oprah Winfrey. Really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, is there anything that you want to know that you'd want me to ask her? <sighs> no, I'm sure you're going to cover everything. Uh, what I would want you to ask her, you can't do it. So. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, thank you, Mom. And uh, I love you. And I will give you a call a little later on. Okay. I love you too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.